want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Our scripture reading today will be verses 29 through 44. The Gospel of Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, You go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, went away, and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will see, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for revealing your Son. Thank you for revealing Jesus, our King. And thank you for your Word that speaks to us today. And I pray, Father, that you would give all of us here today ears to hear what you say to us through your Word. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what took place at the Covenant Presbyterian School in Nashville this past week uh, was devastating and, in fact, tragic. I think the entire world recognizes that something is terribly wrong. But what is it? I think that's an important question. What is actually the problem. 
The facts are clear. Six people were murdered. And, and sadly, we, we hear of this kind of thing far too much. But murder has tragically been part of the human uh, experience, the human history, ever since Genesis chapter 4. The very first family on the face of this earth was impacted by murder. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, killed their older son, Abel. Why was that? The scriptures tell us that it was because he was angry. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says that Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's deeds were righteous. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, which was offered in faith, but he did not accept Cain's offering, which was not offered in faith. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that. And because of that, Cain became angry. So, so angry that he killed his brother. See Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Cain was angry ultimately with God, but he took it out on his brother. Now, we're told that the Lord himself had given Cain a warning in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, and I quote, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So Adam and Eve's first sin impacted the whole world in devastating ways. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we're even told this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the problem. It's a huge problem. What, what What is the remedy? Who can set each of us free from evil and sin? And I say each of us because the problem isn't just out there, it's in here too, in our own hearts. How can each of us be set free from evil and sin? Well, the answer is found in the fulfillment of God's promise, which was given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, just after Adam's first sin. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but for now it's enough to say this, the remedy to evil and sin is what God the Father did through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his son. Evil and sin brought Death and destruction, Jesus brings life and peace. That's why Jesus said in John 16, 33, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then later on in that verse, Jesus says, In me you will have peace. Now, today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that we remember and we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Um, I read the story earlier from Luke's Gospel, which 
is our sermon text here for today. But why is this story referred to as the triumphal entry? Does Jesus win a great military campaign? Uh, No, that's not what it's referring to. It's something, in fact, far greater. It's something that gives you hope for today. Jesus is revealed here as the promised righteous king, our, our deliverer, our king who gives life and peace to all who believe. Today I want to walk through Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. I want to make several observations that will help us to understand this text, but then at the end I plan to make three primary points to help us not miss what Jesus wants us to see. And in this, my prayer is that you will find hope and peace in Jesus now more than ever. Look with me at verse 28. Verse 28 begins by saying, and when he had said these things, well, what things? Um, The parable of the ten minas in the previous text, Jesus taught the importance of being faithful to do what the king had commanded us to do until he comes. So Jesus says in verse 28, when he had, we're told this, that when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, Luke was very interested in telling the story of how Jesus intentionally and resolutely was going up to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. In chapter 13, verse 22, we read, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Um, He was purposefully on this journey to go to Jerusalem. Again, in chapter 17, verse 11, Luke tells us, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. He wanted to go to Jerusalem, but why? Why was Jesus so intent in going up to Jerusalem? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke 18, verse 31 through 33, and I quote, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. So, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. He knew that. He knew that. It would not be an accident. Rather, it would accomplish all that the Father had planned and all that the prophets had foretold. So so Jesus understood this. The disciples at that time did not understand this, but Jesus willingly journeyed to Jerusalem to accomplish his Father's will, to die and to be raised from the dead on the third day to bring you peace with God. In fact, what we learn in verses 29 through 34 reveal that Jesus was in complete control of everything that was taking place. Verse 29 says, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, 
This is east of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley on what we know as the Mount of Olives. So he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where you are entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you un- why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, maybe, maybe Jesus had made arrangements ahead of time, or maybe Jesus just simply had foreknowledge of this colt being tied there, and in either case, the point is the same. Jesus had a plan, and he was at work to accomplish that plan. What happened on what we know as Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of Jesus was not an accident. It wasn't man-made. It was God's plan accomplished through God the Son and even, even through the cult of a donkey. Now, at this point, the disciples did not understand the plan, but Jesus certainly did. And all of what was about to to happen was orchestrated by Jesus because he is all-powerful and in control. And that's a truth that we need to remember even today. In verse 32, we read, So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. So the disciples were obedient. They did just what Jesus had told them to do. They went into the village. They found a colt. John's Gospel tells us it was the colt of a donkey. They, they were, in fact, questioned by its owners. They were probably poor if one donkey was owned by multiple owners. But these owners accepted the explanation given by the disciples, and the disciples took the colt. For the disciples, it's, po- it's possible these, that, that previous experiences with Jesus giving instructions similar to this kind of piqued their interest and they began to wonder what's what's Jesus going to do many times Jesus revealed his glory in all inspiring ways verse 35 says and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt they set Jesus on it. So Jesus, again, had a plan. That plan was being carried out. What we don't know is how much the disciples really understood about what was happening. It it seems that as the event unfolded, they either began to understand more or they were simply moved by God to do what they did. And maybe maybe both. In, In John's Gospel, we're told that the disciples didn't fully understand until Jesus was glorified. But at this point, we know the disciples gave Jesus the colt as a ride, one that had not yet been ridden. And then in verse 36, we're told, and as he rode along, so it wasn't maybe initially as he began to to ride, but as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So this fact suggests that they were starting to see something that, God, in fact, wanted them to see Jesus was God's promised king. And laying their garments down as they did is similar to you and I rolling out the red carpet for an important official. This is what happened in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, where 
Jehu was hastily anointed king over Judah, uh, the fact that they laid their garments down before Jesus, demonstrated that they recognized Jesus as God's promised king, though what type of king they thought he would be is not certainly not clear. The story continues in verse 37, we read, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, um, and it is down the Mount of Olives, Shelley and I had the privilege that you gave to us to actually take that journey from the Mount of Olives down through the Kidron Valley. It's very steep, and the Kidron Valley is deep, and then it is a trek to walk up to the temple. Um, it, it was a great experience for us walking down this road, thinking about what Jesus and the disciples would have experienced then. But, but listen to what happened, verse 37. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen. So these mighty works would have included his many miracles, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, the blind were given sight, the lame could walk, lepers were cleansed, the demon-possessed were healed, water was turned into wine, uh, the 5,000 were fed with just a little boy's lunch, Jesus walked on the water, and the good news of Jesus was proclaimed. Jesus, in fact, did many miracles to reveal his identity, to reveal his deity, that he had come from the Father, to reveal the truth that he had come from the Father and was one with the Father, and to reveal that he is God's promised king. Now, as the multitude of disciples thought about these things, they began to rejoice, they began to praise God with a loud voice. Verse 38, we're told that they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were exclaiming Psalm 118, verse 26, which is a psalm of deliverance, a psalm giving praise to the one God who sends, uh, sends one to deliver. They were blessing the king who comes in the name of the Lord to rescue them. Luke adds that they were also saying loudly, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Do, do you remember what the angels proclaimed to the shepherds on the night when Jesus was born in Luke 2.14? The angels declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here again, as Jesus is preparing to die, we hear of peace and glory. Jesus revealed the Father's glory, and it is Jesus who will bring peace. Remember that. Remember that when you get overwhelmed with the realities of living in a broken world and longing to be at home in glory. Peace was an important theme in the mission of Jesus. We, we know that for the Hebrews, it was shalom, a state of well-being. Uh, for the Old Testament prophets, peace was associated with righteousness. And they said it would be an essential characteristic of the Messianic kingdom. The Greeks thought of peace as the opposite of war. In the New Testament, peace would be a state of rest that comes from being reconciled to God. 
Really, peace is salvation of the whole person. Jesus would die to give sinners peace with God. That was the mission of King Jesus. And in it, his Father would be glorified. The the multitude of disciples were giving praise to King Jesus as they would give praise to God himself. It was absolutely fitting. But in verse 39, we learn that the Pharisees didn't like it. They, They recognized that the disciples were associating Jesus with a messianic king, and they rejected that. I quote verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Disciples. In other words, t- tell your disciples to stop. They, they were the Jewish leaders, but they didn't have eyes to see what the disciples of Jesus could see. They didn't know who Jesus was. They would not accept who Jesus claimed to be. And so they told Jesus to rebuke his disciples, but Jesus answered, I tell you, if they're silent, these very stones will cry out. Jesus is saying it is right that they recognize me as God's promised king. And it's fitting that they give me praise. So much so that if they don't, I'll make the rocks cry out. These dead, inanimate objects will cry out. All of creation is made to worship Jesus. The fact that the Pharisees refused to worship Jesus is a huge problem. In fact, in verses 41 and 42, we're told that as Jesus drew near to the city and as he saw the city, he he wept over the city. Verse 42 says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. It brought sorrow to the heart of Jesus to see his very own people, the Jewish people, reject him as their king. And sadly, they would suffer much because of it. They would not know the peace that Jesus brings. Jesus says about Jerusalem in verses 42 through 44, but now they, the the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, but the days will come Upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Isaiah 57 21 says, There is no peace for the wicked. Sobering indeed. Now, how, how you respond to the revealing of King Jesus becomes of utmost importance. Um, having walked through this text, let me just give you three key truths revealed in this triumphal entry of Jesus to help you respond rightly to, to King Jesus. Number one, in this text, Jesus is revealed to be God's promised King. Um, after God created mankind in his own likeness and, and image, he said they were very good, but then the very first 
couple created by God, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, and as a consequent sin and guilt and death entered into the human race. And in that first family, as I've already mentioned, Cain killed his brother Abel. And, and by the time you come to chapter 5 of Genesis, you read through the list of the descendants of Adam to Noah, and it's really quite sobering. Adam lived 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 905 years, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The text just keeps going on. Death just pounded away on the human race again and again. Then you come to chapter 6, and here we learn that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It, it, was, it was so bad that the Lord regretted that he made man. The Lord sent a flood to judge the whole world with only the righteous man Noah and his family being saved by the ark. And then by the time you come to Genesis or chapter 11 of Genesis, you learn of the Tower of Babel and how the pride and the arrogance and the independence of sinful man, all highly offensive to God, who were created for, uh, uh, man was created for his image, and in his image and for his glory, we, we learn how man caused God to confuse their languages and scattered them throughout the earth. Um, this is a response of their sin. It was an act of mercy that God confused their language and, and scattered them across the earth. That's just the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Um, the sin problem would, would get worse. But thankfully, what is also revealed in that portion of Scripture is that God promised to send a deliverer. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And, and then in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to bless Abram, make him into a great nation from his offspring to give him a land, and through him bless all the peoples of the earth. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with King David to establish a righteous king who would reign on his throne forever. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God also promised that he would establish a new covenant where there would be real forgiveness of sin and the gift of a new heart. And all of its members would know God and worship God and delight in God forever. And the best news of all of this is this. All these promises, all of these promises find their fulfillment in King Jesus. Real Hope for a sin-sick world is found only in King Jesus. That is the significance of Jesus revealing himself to be God's promised king on Palm Sunday. That, that is cause for great rejoicing. There is a second truth that I want you to grab a hold of this morning. It's this. The all-powerful yet humble, the, the, the mission of King Jesus was not to overthrow the Romans, but to establish the kingdom of heaven. 
Um, Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a powerful white horse. He came into Jerusalem on a humble colt of a donkey. He came to make peace, not war. Peace between God and sinner. He wasn't on a military campaign to overthrow the Romans. Later when Jesus was being questioned by Pilate, Jesus said plainly that his kingdom was not from this world. If it were, as the servants would have They've put up, uh, they would have been fighting uh, to not be handed over to the Jews, but in fact, the mission of Jesus was to establish the kingdom of heaven. He, he began his earthly ministry. Jesus began his earthly ministry by saying, the, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1.15 so you, you don't have a kingdom without a king, and Jesus reveals himself to be that promised king, a righteous king. He is God's promised righteous king, and he came to form a people and to call a people and to save a people by the means of the gospel from every nation and tribe and language on the earth to be citizens of his kingdom. And today, his reign as king has begun to reign. It's a spiritual kingdom, not a geopolitical kingdom. That's why our center isn't in Jerusalem at the temple. Um, Jesus, King Jesus, dwells with us spiritually by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.22 says, In him, in Jesus, you, the church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. So I'm thankful that we don't have to worship in a temple in Jerusalem. We worship in spirit and truth wherever we are. So Jesus dwells with us by his spirit. He reigns as our king. He leads us. He, he cares for us. He provides for us. He protects us. He is our source of peace. He is our peace. But, but I also want you to know that King Jesus has promised to come again. And when he comes again, he will come to bring judgment to those who have rejected him as king. And he will bring salvation fully to those who are looking forward to his return. And when that happens, when Jesus comes again, citizens of his kingdom will be given a land. It will be the new heavens and the new earth and will rest in his glorious presence for all eternity in perfect peace. We'll, we'll experience, we do experience that peace by faith now, but on that day when Jesus comes again, we will experience it fully. But, but please know, now is the time to get ready for his second coming. Now is the time. Today is the day to repent and put your faith in the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, one final glorious truth revealed in the triumphal entry of Jesus is this. Amazingly, King Jesus came to Jerusalem to die as God's sacrificial lamb so that those who receive him can enter the kingdom and have peace with God. This is amazing because Jesus is the promised king. He, he is God dwelling with man in the flesh. And he willingly went to the cross and died. Jesus 
willingly, in love, shed his blood to atone for the sin of all those that he came to save. This this is important because you will remember the Old Testament made it clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In the Old Covenant, every year much blood was shed. It was the blood of animals as God instructed. But in Hebrews 10, we learn that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. They were, in fact, a constant reminder of sin. And we now know that they really pointed to something greater, to Jesus. As Hebrews 10.10 says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. What, what an amazing truth. King Jesus was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God slain for us. In his death, he bore the just wrath of God in our place. God, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, made a way for sinners to have real forgiveness of sin and to have peace with God. And in this way, you enter into the kingdom where you will enjoy the blessing of living under His sweet authority and reign today and for all eternity. That that is good news. That is the Gospel. That is why Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. A righteous King who loves His people to such an extent that He would willingly lay down His life and die in their place to give them peace with his father in heaven but not all will experience that peace that is why we we are reminded how physical death still pounds away in our sin cursed world jesus though alone, Jesus alone is a remedy for death. Nothing else or no one else will do. But you must repent and believe. Romans 12 or 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So do do you believe? Are you living by faith in Jesus this morning? Jesus, King Jesus, is indeed worthy to be believed and to be praised. That's how you receive Jesus the King. That is how you can experience peace with God. Let's pray together. Father, what an amazing thing it is to think about the humility of Jesus, uh, the obedience of Jesus, to come to Jerusalem knowing full well what was about to take place. Father, we marvel at your plan, your plan to send your own only Son to the cross 
but it was your plan that through his death on that cross that the guilt of our sin would be washed away, atoned for. We would experience the forgiveness of sin when we live by faith in Jesus, when we believe that what Jesus did in his death, he did for me. You promise forgiveness. You promise eternal life. You give us peace with you. Father, I praise you and I thank you for the gift of Jesus. And I pray that each one here today would would receive Jesus as their Lord, as their King, as their Savior. And I pray, Father, that you would fill us, that, that through Jesus we have peace with you, and that you would fill us with your peace as we live here in a world that is broken with sin, and as we look forward to that day when Jesus will come again to take us to be with you, where we will experience peace fully in your presence. That's going to be a great day, and we look forward to that day. Help us today to be a people who, who receive the King by faith and who live for the praise of the King even this day. We thank you for the way that you work, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.